beginning in verse 22. We've looked at wives and husbands in that relationship. We've looked briefly at children to parents and the reciprocal responsibility in that relationship. And now we'll title this message of servants and masters. Servants and masters. The word servant, of course, as you know, is doulos, which means slave. A slave. And the word master is from kurios, which means lord. Lord. So as we look at this subject, first of all, I want to pose the question, has it ever troubled you that Paul didn't openly come out and condemn slavery? He doesn't condone it. Nowhere in the Scripture does Paul condone slavery. But he doesn't condemn it either. Has that ever troubled you? Have you ever wondered why? Is Paul like the politicians of our day when they're asked, point blank, do you think what Hamas did in Israel was evil? They don't condone it, but they don't condemn it. And it leaves you thinking that they probably are okay with it. So first we look at this question, what are we to think and what did Paul really think about slavery? And then we'll look at the four phrases that Paul uses that transforms the relationship of servant to master. Now, there is no direct correlation in our society, so it's, it's not just so easy to transfer it to the workplace. Uh, there's, there's, there's no similarities, really. To own another person is not, in any case, similar to working for an employer. But having said that, there are principles we can learn from what Paul says about obedience that would apply in many cases, in many a context in our lives today. So, why doesn't Paul condemn it? The first one is speculation on my part. The second one, we'll look at the Scripture. First of all, under Roman rule in the Roman Empire, Pax Romana, which was the golden age in Rome, 200 years of prosperity, was sustained through a heavy-handed military. Any insurrection... Any uprising in Judea, which we've seen in Scripture and in history, and in Britain, they would put down heavily, not through democratic rule, but with the sword. Had Paul come out in his letters and said, slavery is wrong, it should be ended, it could have brought the fury of Rome on the church in a heavy-handed way, and the fury of masters on their slaves. Now, that's just my opinion. I'm not from Scripture, but that, that is a possibility. When Paul wrote, he wanted to protect. Now, we know that Rome brought persecution on the church for a much lesser reason, which was not insurrection at all. When you read 1 Peter, the Christians were being obedient to the government and to all that were in authority over them, and yet Rome under Nero brought persecution. So that could be one reason. But secondly, when we look at what Paul wrote about this relationship, it becomes very clear that what he wrote so transformed the relationship that it essentially didn't exist anymore. Yes, the instruction and the framework remained. Paul will address throughout his epistles masters 
and slaves. But when you read what Paul wrote, he transformed it in such a way that it all but essentially eliminated the relationship that preexisted Christianity. Slavery has been about throughout the world for ages and centuries. And it is something that is to be condemned, something that is not good. So let's hear what Paul says. First of all, he wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 10, Knowing this, that the law is not made for the righteous, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and the sinners, for the unholy and the profane, for murders of fathers, murders of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for those that defile themselves with mankind, for men stealers. Now Paul is mirroring the Ten Commandments. Lawless, disobedient, unholy, profane, ungodly. First tablet, parallel. Then he starts with command number five. Murders of fathers, murders of mothers, dishonors parents. Next, thou shalt not kill manslayers. Next, don't commit adultery, whoremongers, those that defile themselves with mankind. The next one, do not steal men stealers. Translated, to unjustly put a free man into slavery. That's what the word means. It means someone who kidnaps or steals in order to sell a person to another person. Men stealers. So men stealers is put in the place of lawlessness, profaneness, unholy, ungodly, and disobedient. That's to be a lawbreaker. To unjustly put a free person in slavery, which would mean unjustly against their will. There may be people that put themselves, and it is said in the Roman Empire, sometimes people would put themselves in that position because of debt owed. That wasn't by and large the reason. To unjustly own another person against their will is to be a man-stealer, and it breaks one of the Ten Commandments. What does Paul think about slavery? It's law-breaking. Secondly, Colossians 3, verse 10. And have put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, bond or free. But Christ is all in and all. Paul teaches that the slave and the free man are on a parallel in the kingdom of God. They are new people in Christ. This was unheard of in slavery. They were thought to be inferior, almost human-less. So Paul's instruction would transform this view that the master is above the slave. You're on equal footing with God. You're in the same, same kingdom. There's no one-upmanship. They are not inferior. But they are all one in Christ. Galatians 3.28, Paul says the same thing. Next, Colossians 4.1. Masters, give unto your servants that which is just and equal, unheard of in slavery. Nobody did that. What is right, what is just, what is just? Well, if you hire somebody to work the farm who's not a slave, and you've got this slave doing the same work, it would seem to indicate you pay him. Slaves didn't get paid. 
Paul says, masters, you give them what is just and equal and right, unheard of in the Roman Empire. What's Paul doing? He's transforming the relationship. Although he leaves the structure in place, he still speaks to these two positions, these two responsibilities, as this is how you're to interact with one another, but do what is just and equal. Ephesians chapter 6, the parallel to our text. Verse 9, And ye masters do the same things unto them. What same things? Verse 6, Doing the will of God from the heart. There's a sense in which the masters are to do the will of God toward the slaves from the heart. Verse 7, with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men. And you masters do the same things unto them. Doing service to the Lord is to do service to the slave. There's a way in which the master was to be a servant to those under his authority and under his leadership. He was to do it just, right, and equal. And he was to do the same things in his position to the slave that they were doing back to them, although in different positions. To work hard toward them, to do good toward them, to serve the Lord doing goodwill from the heart. Forbearing, threatening. Now this undermined the whole system of slavery. Just like inferiority undermined it, the whole reason they had slaves, they thought these people were inferior. Now in the Roman Empire, the, the, the slavery was not divided across racial lines. The color had nothing to do with it. It was often those taken captive in war, and many Roman citizens were slaves in the empire. It was just based on inferiority. So if you're all in one in Christ, what happens? The basis of slavery is gone. We're, we're all equal in Christ. And if you bear, forbear threatening, which was the means of motivating slaves to do work, any form of threatening, any form at all, which threatening is a precursor to the actual act of violence. For none is to be done. Knowing that your master also is in heaven, neither is there respect of persons with him. See, the basis of slavery is you're respecting persons. And God says, I don't respect persons, you don't either. And then finally in Colossians 4, Verse 7, all my state shall Tychicus declare unto you, who is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. Verse 8, whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose that he might know your estate and comfort your hearts. With Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother. Now he uses almost the same wording for Tychicus, who's a brother and a faithful minister, and Onesimus is a faithful and beloved brother. Who's Onesimus? He's the slave that ran away from Philemon. And the church at Colossae is in Philemon's house. It could be that Onesimus is a free man. We know Paul encouraged him to go back in Philemon and be reconciled to his master, right? But the relationship would be totally transformed. And now Onesimus, who was a slave, is a faithful, beloved brother. By the providence of God, he was led to Paul when he ran away, sent back to Philemon for forgiveness by Philemon, and reuniting as a brother in Christ, and now he is what? A faithful and beloved brother. And the little word that's not supplied is minister. Could Onesimus have been a minister of the Lord? Possibly. 
The point is that everything Paul says about this relationship has been so transformed that essentially the whole basis for master to slave is gone. It's gone. And these brothers in Christ now are serving one another in a way that Paul leaves the structure in place. See it in 1 Timothy 6.1, Titus 2.9, Ephesians 6. He addresses this reciprocal responsibility, but it's been transformed. Because God, when He's going to change something among Christians, among His people, how does He do it? From the inside out, not the outside in. And when the inside's changed, what happens? What's happened in the history of slavery? Christianity has been the catalyst to eliminate it. That is true Christianity, like William Wilberforce in England for 20 years fought to end it, and eventually it did. So having said that now, if you've ever been troubled why Paul doesn't condemn it, the first one is speculation, the other, he spoke to transform it. And so now let's look at the four phrases that would transform our submission whether it is an employee to employer or any of the other ways we've seen that God calls us to submit to authorities in place that God has put over us. Those are wives, husbands, children to parents, servants to masters, uh, church to elders, he- Hebrews 13, 17, obey them that have the rule over you, for they watch for your souls. Submit yourselves. Uh, members to church, Matthew 18, tell it to the church. And then government, Romans 13.1 and 1 Peter 2.13. Submit to every ordinance of man, whether the king as supreme or to governor sent by him. Or to submit to the powers that be, the powers are ordained of God. So, so in any of those contexts, the principles here of obedience will work. So first, verse 22. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh. The word obey is the imperative mood, it's the active voice, and it's continuous. Keep obeying, keep submitting, keep listening and coming under your masters, those over you, but Paul qualifies according to the flesh. If the scope is all things, and it is, then he puts a qualifier on it, according to the flesh. Now Paul uses this phrase in Romans chapter 9, when he speaks there, he says, I lie not. I speak the truth in Christ, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I'm in great heaviness and continual sorrow of heart. Why, Paul? For I could wish myself accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites. And as Israelites, they shared the adoption, the promises, the covenants, the law, the history, the patriarchs. And of whom Christ came, who is God blessed forever. Yet, not as the word of God has taken none effect, they are not all Israel which are of Israel. Now what's Paul saying? He's giving us two categories there. According to the flesh means a natural Israelite like Paul that he shares a common bond with because they're part of the same nation. And a rich history that dates back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But everybody that's an Israelite like that is not a true Israelite in the spirit. So he's... He's separating and saying, according to the flesh means one thing. I am a a brother to these people. I'm concerned for them. But he's a different kind of Israelite in a different way. He has a a spiritual bonding connection, a brotherhood with all those that are in Christ. Now, taking that phrase here, what does Paul mean? What's he separating? He's saying, yes, 
you have an obligation, you have a responsibility to those over you called masters to obey in all things, but it's according to the flesh. Now the word master again could be translated lords, plural. Lords, according to the flesh, means there's a lord that is not according to a flesh. There's a lord that is supreme and over all little l lords. And the word Lord, referring to Christ, is used multiple times in our text. Verse 28, as heartily to the Lord. Verse 24, for you serve the Lord Christ. Verse 1 of chapter 4, you have a master, a Lord, capital M in the KJV, in heaven. And six or seven times, beginning with wives to husbands, the word Lord is used. So, The scope of obedience is in everything, but the qualification is according to the flesh because you have a master that's over everything that we learned in Colossians 1. He's created all lords, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers. Those include lords in the spiritual realm, powerful beings in the earthly realm, thrones, dominions, and powers. He's created them all. He's over them all. They all are sustained by Him. He's before them all. And in all things in the church, He aims to have the preeminence. How does Christ have the preeminence in our obedience? Coming under those masters according to the flesh, but when the master in heaven's will is counter to any earthly master, then we refuse to obey the earthly master. Now, word of caution for us, because civil disobedience is kind of wired in our flesh, right? There's nothing we would like more to say, I'm not submitting to you. We must be clear that it's something out of sync with the will of the master. In the history of Christianity, people have killed one another and say, the will of God be done, right? And so the example we see then, the first implication would be if if a master were to require something inappropriate because he has authority over a slave, it was to be refused. We see this in Genesis 39.7 with Joseph. Joseph is a slave in Egypt by the providence of God. His brothers have sold him into slavery. He's in Potiphar's house, which is his master now. And because of God's providence and God being with Moses... Or Joseph, rather, Joseph works hard and now he's in a position of being head over all other slaves and everything that Potiphar has has been put into Joseph's hands. He doesn't even know what he owns except he sees the food on the table when he sits down to eat it. But Potiphar has a wife. And if Potiphar's the master, then the the master's wife is also the master of Joseph. She cast her eyes upon Joseph and said, lie with me. But Joseph refused. Was that right? Yes, it was right. Because the master's wife, who's Joseph's master, her will for Joseph conflicted with the God of heaven, and Joseph said, no. I have a master in heaven. I will not submit to your request. And he said to her, the master Potiphar, He's put all things into my hand. He doesn't even know what he has. How can I commit this great sin in the sight of God? Now translated to what Joseph is saying is, the reason Potiphar did this, 
The reason that I'm in this position, the reason he doesn't even know what, what he owns is because the God of grace has prospered me and helped me in this place called slavery. And therefore, to act against the master according to the flesh would be to act against my master according to heaven. Furthermore, to act according to the master's request, according to the flesh, to lie with Joseph, would be go contrary to the God of heaven, which Joseph says would be sin against God. Now this speaks to the issue of human trafficking, doesn't it? Or sex trafficking today. This is an evil. This is terrible. This is unjust. It's against the will of the person that is being required to engage in it. They are to refuse, but what's the problem? They are being threatened with loss of life and death to family members. But the principle remains. That kind of command from any authority or any kind of command by an authority according to the flesh that runs contrary to the will of the Lord Jesus Christ, who's master of everything, Lord of lords, and King of Kings, then we can respectfully refuse. And so first, Paul puts a qualification on the scope of obedience, and, and we can follow that qualification through every, uh, every authority that we have. Whatever the authority is that God has placed for our good, we know that authority can be abused, and when it goes beyond the will of the Master, then it's clear Paul expects the response to be a refusal. To obey. Secondly, Paul further qualifies in the next phrase concerning obedience. He would say, not negative, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. Now we'll, we'll leave the fearing God as a separate item, so we'll look at singleness of heart. So look at the contrast. This obedience is not with, but in. So servants. Or church, in your obedience, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness. Now what does that mean? Eye service simply means, as the word implies, service to the master under his eyes, under his watch. Right? Rather than singleness of heart. Now, Eye service then would mean two kinds of service, right? When the master's eyes are present, you're a pretty hard worker. You know? Put your phone in your pocket and quit surfing the net. Your feet were kicked up on the desk, you put them down. Why? Well, the master's eyes now are watching you. Master leaves, put your feet back up, get the phone back out, start surfing the net again because the master's not there. So you can see that Paul is talking about a duplicity of service. Now that really defines the word singleness, doesn't it? Singleness is the opposite of pretense or hypocrisy or being duplicit or double-minded. This is a person that has a wholeness or an integrity. And of course the reason is, is because you serve the Lord and you know the Master's eyes are always on you. Always. That can be terrifying for some people, but for the Christian, that ought to be a great comfort because the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and His ears are open to their prayer. See, in Christ, for God's eyes to be on you, to be righteous because of Christ's 
death and His righteousness for you is for God's eyes to be over you for good, not for evil. And so with that awareness, it brings a singleness to your work and to your submission that's, that is a wholeness no matter who's watching, no matter who is in the thoughts in your mind, because nobody is, except for Christ. No matter who's in your bedroom at night with you, when nobody else is there, mom and dad can't see you, doesn't matter. The master is always watching. When you're at work alone, or when you men are working from home, and boy, that, that could be a temptation, you know. I'm going to get paid for eight hours. I'll give them seven hours. I'll spend an hour with the family or go do the project outside. Why don't you do that? Because the master's eyes are always watching you. Nobody can see you at home as far as the master who only has eyes that can see in one place at one time. But Jesus, your Lord and master, is always watching for good. And therefore that produces an integrity or a singleness of your heart. Young people, you don't need to be told how the work ethic in our society is terrible. I've spoken to employers and owners and they say, we're just looking for people to show up. You know, it doesn't get much past that in some cases. So if you are a hard worker and you're working as unto the Lord, not to men, even though men are involved, that's who you're working for, you will be the best that you possibly can be. And you will be obedient whether they know what you're doing or not. And it will not to be a, a men pleaser. My children can quote the rest of my sentence every time I start saying it. I think I've even said it here. I've told them, I said, if you ever get a job at McDonald's, I expect you to be the manager in one year flat. Not because you're so smart, because your work ethic is going to be so separate and apart than anybody there. I expect you to rise up quick. Have you ever been in some places? And they won't even hardly look at you, smile at you, and they're on their phone or talking to other people. See, when you're working unto the Lord, it transforms the relationships. Even if your boss is not a believer, you are, you trust Christ, so you have a work ethic of integrity. And He can trust you, she can trust you, because you serve the Lord Christ, not as a men pleaser, but in singleness of heart to the Lord. Now, what does it mean to be a men pleaser? That's connected with eye service. See, to serve men with eye service as men pleasers is really to be in the service of self for the pleasure of self. Uh, now, we see that when Paul uses part of this word, men pleasers is a compound word, anthropos, man, and the word for, a Greek word for pleasing. He uses it in Galatians chapter 1, about the 6th or 7th verse. He uses it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4. And there, you know, he's speaking to a church which others were accusing Paul to be kind of a man that did eye service with the gospel as a men pleaser. They accused him of being a charlatan. Somebody that said things, but he was duplicit because in his heart he was after something else. And that would describe the kind of work, the kind of service that Paul is condemning here in this verse. So he'd say, you know what kind of people, what kind of men we were when we came among you, that our, our, uh, our labor was not in vain. For even after we suffered before and were shamefully treated at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. 
So Paul's already saying, you know that what they're saying is not true because you know we had a boldness when we came and we spoke out of that boldness. And then Paul gives the reasons he was bold. Because our exhortation was not of deceit, nor uncleanness, nor of guile. Now all those words convey what? Something going on on the inside that's not happening on the outside. That's duplicity. That's the double-minded man of James 1, right? He's driven with the wind and tossed because he's not asking in faith, right? When he prays and when he goes to church, he's not doing it in faith because inwardly he's after something else. But outwardly it seems like he's sold out to God. He's praying, he's speaking about God, but inside he's being tossed to and fro. There's double-mindedness. So that's what Paul is being accused of. Deceit. Uncleanness means an impure motive. We know what you're saying, Paul, but we think you're thinking something else. And guile could be translated a decoy, you know. If it quacks like a duck, it is a duck, but not on this occasion because the man in the weeds is quacking like a duck and the decoy looks like a duck, but it's not, right? You knew that. So, Paul, why aren't you duplicit? But as we were allowed to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak. Not as men pleasers or pleasing men, but God who tries the heart, tests the heart. Now the word trieth there means to approve. So Paul says, the reason I'm not speaking out of uh, deceit and uh, guile and uncleanness is because I've been put in trust with the gospel... Not to speak it in a way that pleases men, but God who's always looking at the heart. I'm looking to God to be the approver of who I am and what I say. In other words, I want to be approving to God. I want to please God, not men. So God is always the master who knows Paul's heart so he can speak out of that integrity regardless of what men say about him. Regardless if they lie and say, he's really not doing good work. He loafs. And if you can't prove it, to say, I know before God, He's my witness. I'm speaking, I'm working out of integrity, out of singleness of heart, because God is trying my heart. Now what would Paul do if he were a duplicit man? He would be a men-pleaser with his gospel, and he would adjust the gospel to meet the pleasure of man. And that happens all over our culture, doesn't it? Who's my audience? Who am I speaking to? Adjust the message to meet the audience. That would, could be what? Deceit, uncleanness, guile. Paul says, I'm not a men pleaser. I'm not speaking to please men, but God which trieth the hearts. And now he tells us what's at the root level in verse 4. 4 and 5 of verse. 1 Thessalonians, that that we need to be free of to be the kind of servant that works the same whether the master's around or he's not. So Paul would say then, after being entrusted with the gospel, because neither at any time use we flattering words. You know this. See, Paul's boldness conveyed the truth that he wasn't speaking flattery. See, when you... When you do eye service as a men pleaser and the boss comes around, you flatter him, you know, because you, you're after something, you know, promotion or something, you, so you, you 
flatter. Okay. Nor a cloak of covetousness, God is witness. See, they couldn't confirm that. I guess there are ways you could tell whether Paul was after the money, you know. Throughout the epistles we see and can tell Paul was not in it for that. So not a pretext, not a cloak of greed. God's my witness to that, he says. See, love of money will change the message. Being a man pleaser will change the message. Doing eye service as men pleasers will what? Change your work ethic so that you're duplicit. And then he says this, nor of men sought we glory, not of you or of any other man. Loving what? The, the approval of man. And we could probably put that in the modern context of social media. You know. If you love the approval of man on social media, you've got to adapt to what that approval is demanding of you. Oh, this is the way the wind is moving today, so I'll adjust to get their approval. Well, it's shifting like a wave to the other side. Now I'll adjust what I say and what I do to get their approval. And James says we're like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed, which produces instability rather than singleness of heart because we're after something that man can give us rather than something that God already has by grace, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul says... When you do your work, do it as unto the Lord in singleness of heart. Now, here's the question. Shouldn't we try to please our bosses? <laughs> you know, did you ever teach your child to do that? You know, you want to please them. You want to obey in a way that would please them. Is there ever an occasion to please those that are under authority? We say, well, there's never occasion. Well, Paul thinks there was. So addressing these same people in Titus 2.9, he would say this. Exhort servants to be obedient to their masters and to please them well in everything. This sounds like a complete contradiction. Not with eye service as men pleasers, and then Paul says, please them well in everything. So there is a way in which we ought to want to please those that we work for or those over us. So how does Paul qualify that? Verse 10 of Titus 2, he gives the details. Not answering again, nor purloining, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things that we're trying to please in all things, right? The word adorn is, we get the word ornament. Or cosmetics, ornament. An ornament is something that is used to attract attention to something else, not itself. So Paul is calling on servants to please their masters in everything so that they would attract attention to the doctrine of God. Now what are the ornaments that attract attention to God in that text? First, not answering again. In family setting, we call that talking back. You know, children, don't talk back to your parents. Now, we know that doesn't mean just don't say anything back. There's a certain kind of attitude to it, right? Don't talk against your masters. We could say don't talk about them and slander them and degrade them 
when they're not around, where their, where their eyes are not over you, right? Even if there is something about them that is degradable in their character and in their supervision, don't degrade them to others. Now, if there's a place in your workplace where your, your employer expects you to give feedback, expects you to kind of push back on ideas and really, really contribute. That, that's not what Paul is saying. It's, it's an attitude of rebellion that answers back and, and that talks against and talks down and talks contrary in a way that everybody knows. It's, it's against the leadership. So that's an ornament. The second ornament is purloining, which means embezzling. Now, if a slave had an unbelieving master, it was not going to go well. You know, the, the, the masters in Rome used threatening, and they would harm their slaves. So you could assume, well, my circumstances are bad. I don't want to be here. Things aren't going well. The man's rich. You know the attitude toward the rich today. They've got riches. They didn't earn it. They didn't work for it. They don't deserve it. So I'm going to take a little bit. We'll take some of the property home. The master will never know. You know, how much could have Joseph taken? Joseph could have taken whatever he wanted. Whatever. So, you know, I'm not making any money here. When I get out of here, I'm going to need to buy a house. I'm just going to shove a little bit, put it under my mattress. He'll never know. He doesn't even know how much money he's got. All he knows is the food on his table. And I can even take the food. He wouldn't know that. But in singleness of heart, we're not embezzling. We're not taking things from the workplace unless the employer said, hey, you can have that. Because that's stealing, isn't it? It's stealing. So you could be in a workplace, say, I don't like working here. The boss is not kind. The strategy's all wrong here. They're, they're terrible bosses. I'm just going to take something. First, I'm going to, I'm going to take eight hours. I'm just going to give them seven. I'm going to give them shoddy work. Now, how many people you think in the world are doing that in our current culture? Young people, old people too, you, you have an opportunity to, to adorn the gospel today among your peers. And you'll probably even get criticized for being a good worker, for being a hard worker. <clears throat> and they may say, you need to slow down. You're making this look bad. I'm just working. And so the ornament of purloining is the ornament that is not embezzling but trusting God. And then showing all good fidelity, which means faithfulness, loyalty, or someone that can be relied upon. Can you be relied upon? See, that would please the master. You know, that, that servant, he or she can be relied upon. I never suspect, never thought that servant would never steal from me. That servant was always compliant. When he had a good idea, he spoke it, and I wanted him to do that and she to do that. See? So, how does this meet what Paul is saying in our text? Not I service with men pleasers, but yet the same group of people please them in everything. Because when you adorn the doctrine of God our Savior toward all things, what does that mean? Well, in Titus 2, he says, because the grace of God that's appeared to all men teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking to the glorious hope and the blessed Savior, Jesus Christ, looking for His return. Now, what's Paul saying? See, 
When you adorn the doctrine of God, you're adorning the grace of the gospel. And when you're adorning that gospel in everything to the people you work for, particularly unbelievers, you want them to believe that gospel. You want them to experience the same grace that gives you the power not to embezzle. Because if you're not living by ungodly desires, how do you do that? How do you keep from the ungodly desire to steal when you need money? Because the doctrine of the blessed God is, is greater than what you can get from money. The supremacy of Christ is a greater delight to you than what money can be for you. And therefore, the, the doctrine of God becomes the power to please them in all things, and then the power to be an ornament that points the Master to the gospel because He sees in you, and He sees something that He doesn't see in the culture. What, why, why do you work so hard? Why are you here every day? Why do you do that? Why don't you complain? Because I have a Master in heaven. I serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you serve Him too? And Paul, of course, shores this up in 1 Corinthians 10 again, where he says, He pleases all men in all things. Right? The apostle has said, Don't be a men pleaser, says, Well, I try to please all men in all things. He would say, Whatsoever you do in word or deed, or whatsoever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all for the glory of God. Don't give offense to the Jews, to the Greeks, or the church of God. The offense there means to be a stumbling block. It doesn't mean to say anything that might stir them up. Don't be a means of a stumbling block that leads them into sin. And Paul is talking about Christian liberty of eating meat offered to idols. If that would be a stumbling block, then don't eat it for the glory of God. That's why he says, eat and drink to the glory of God. And then he says, even as I myself, please all men in all things that by all means I might... Save some. Why is Paul, who's not a man pleaser, he says in 1 Thessalonians 2, and he encourages servants not to be a man pleaser. Now he says, I please everybody in all things. What does he mean? He means to the Jews I become a Jew. To the Greeks I become a Greek. To the Romans I become a Roman. See, as Christians, we should not be odd and strange in the society, Right? Unless being odd and strange is what the Bible requires. Why are you so odd, Mike? Well, God says to live this way. And in some way, you're going to be odd and strange. But our, our, our design is not to stick out like a sore thumb. So Paul goes into Rome and somehow he's going to be like a Roman. He's going to be like a Jew. He's going to be like a Greek. Why? That it all means he might save some and God get the glory in the salvation of sinners or in the sanctification by the church of God. And so Paul's aim in pleasing men is the glory of God, which then brings the qualification that he's not a men pleaser, where the Bible says he shouldn't be, but where he can be, the aim is the glory of God to be an ornament of the doctrine of God in everything that Paul does, or the servant does, so that the grace of God can be seen for what it is, truly a joy, a pleasure, and all satisfying that Jesus Christ has died to save us from our sins, drawn us to Himself. And now, what we want to be like an ornament to the world with our words and our actions is we serve the Lord Christ. Therefore, I'm going to serve you. And where 
your will conflicts with Jesus, I'm only going to serve the Master. So I am here to please you in everything in hopes that you will see the same glory. You will taste and see that the Lord is good. And so Paul says, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of God, a singleness of heart, fearing God. We're going to stop there and this afternoon we'll look at what does it mean to obey God out of fear? How is that good motivation? And then the last one will be obey heartily as to the Lord. It means out of the heart. And those are the other two things we'll look at this afternoon. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, We want to Honor you, Lord, in the way that we interact in society, whether we are under the authority of uh, local government officials and how we speak about them and how we talk about them, recognizing, Lord, that when uh, actions are out of sync with your word, we can speak to that issue. We can say what is wrong and right because you have said in your word. Help us, Lord, not to have the attitude of complaint and an attitude that answers back in the wrong way. Help us not to be men-pleasers in the wrong way with eye service. We're all guilty. It's part of our nature just to get comfortable and slack when eyes are not on us. So help us to remember we're always under the eye of the Master of Heaven for our good We thank you, Lord, that your eyes are over us for good and that your ears are enlarged to our prayers. As if you're bending down from heaven close to us to listen to our request and to our prayers only through the blood of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that when uh, we clearly see that uh, the human master's will is contrary to yours, that we would be like Joseph, who's a type of Christ, that we would be able to refuse... Uh, that authority refuse in a way that's respectful, but to clearly communicate we have a Lord in heaven who's over us and who's for us, and that we would have boldness like Paul did, a boldness that's clearly standing on the Word and gives you honor and glory, recognizing we live in a culture where such boldness is called for. So Lord, give us wisdom, give us grace, and bless us to adorn and attract attention to the gospel of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave Himself for us. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen.